Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of Ruby Book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of CodeNewbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So today we've got a surprise for you. We have the authors of 99 Bottles of OOP, Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. Sandy, Katrina, do you want to say hi? Hi, this is Katrina. Hi, this is Sandy. Hi. We're so, so excited to have you all on the show. And we just love this idea of having the authors on near the beginning of the book so that people get uh, a little invested, kind of see your thoughts and your words as they read the book. So really excited to have you all join so early. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. We're very happy to be here. So I guess a good place to start is just to tell us a little bit about 99 Bottles of OOP. We go. Okay. Uh, this book this book takes a programming problem that you could think of maybe as kata-sized and walks through, a, writes an initial solution, and then walks through a number of refactorings. Okay, that's kind of boring. You could do that at home. You don't need a book. What What's really in the book is a description of the justification of every single one-line change made across a whole bunch of refactorings. So it's a it's a way to crawl inside the heads of two people who have spent a couple of years thinking about this problem and how you could make uh, it, how the solutions that you might create for this problem apply to perhaps larger problems, larger abstractions, and you can get inside their heads and see how they decide what to do, which is a thing that my experience is that, that people are really dying for, right? This is not a book about how code look when it looks when it's done. This is a book about how to write code. Yes, I was very excited when I started reading this book because of that, what you just mentioned, Sandy, because often we read books which show us solutions and, and things we should strive and aim for, but it's really tricky to work out how to get there, particularly when you're a newer developer. And so it's very exciting to have a book where you start with a problem, you're encouraged to go away and do some coding and code as you go along. How did you decide on the 99 Bottles Carter specifically? Well, I found it on exorcism. <laughs> and I talked to <laughs> nice. Katrina about it. Right? Katrina, you go. Yeah. So I, three years ago, I started exorcism um, kind of by accident. And the 99 Balls problem was one of the problems that we had on the site from the very beginning. And the interesting thing about this problem, there were a few interesting things. The most interesting thing to me was that no matter what people did, it kind of was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sandy submitted her solution, which was not just one solution, it was three in the same file with an enormous explanation above each solution about, well, if this is what the problem, like, if this is what you need, then this might be the direction you'd go in. But if this is the real problem you're aiming for, then this other thing. And so that started a really fascinating conversation between the two of us of um, the design pressures in this problem um, and the trade-offs and choices that we make. I'm sorry, I just want to understand Sandy, you just do programming exercises on websites. Is that is that how you spend your time? I, you know, I almost never do. And <laughs> okay. actually, I never actually practiced programming before I met Katrina. Oh, fascinating. Really? I, no, I never did. I had a day job. <laughs> I, I was busy. You had stuff to do? <laughs> I had stuff to do. It was, it was, I mean, I definitely sometimes, you know, I, I, in my, you know, day job, the things that people paid me for, like I would uh, do uh, occasionally do, I would do new things. I would take risks. I would do perhaps even experiments, but I never did anything that you might even faintly characterize as deliberate practice. Mm. You know, I didn't start doing that actually until I finished Pooter and ended up leaving a day, my day job so, such that I was not writing code all day long every day. And then I had a couple of choices, right? I do a little bit of coding for other people, but mostly I don't have occasion to write code. And and all of a sudden, I I was in a situation where, where I was explaining how to write code to people, and I had two pressures, right? One was that I real I was bored. I was sorry not to be writing code because it is the most fun thing. It is more fun than anything else. Certainly, it's more fun than writing, <laughs> writing books, right? So I wanted to I I wanted that play, but also I needed. Um, 
small, like you can't teach people with big problems. You can't say, here's a net, here's a half a million line, half a million lines of code application. Let's learn something from it. Right. Probably you have to have problems of sufficient size, a sufficient smallness so that people can understand the domain in about two minutes, but of sufficient complexity so that the they can ext extrapolate answers from those small that they learn things that they learn from the small problems to larger abstractions. And that it's a really tough thing to find a good, a highly complex, very small problem. And so this, you know, I was looking for things to do. I was playing on exorcism and then I found 99 bottles and I submitted a bunch of different solutions. And Katrina told me, no one ever does that, but you, you're the <laughs> only one that ever submits more than one solution. But she also asked me a really a pivotal question about my solutions. She, I, I wrote at least one, one of my solutions had more than one object in it. And Katrina looked at my solution and she said, how did, how you, did know? you know? Huh. And, and I couldn't explain it. I just said, well, can't you see? And that's an awesome teaching technique. Right? That, I mean, that's what all the programming books are about. That, uh, uh, well, not all. I shouldn't say that. But so much of what we do in OO, people just wave their hands and they say, look, here are all the objects. Can't you see? And it just doesn't, it, it doesn't do, like, my challenge to have a conversation with, like, Finding a way to explain to Katrina how I knew there were objects there really formed the basis of this book. So, Katrina, when you said, how did you know, did that mean that you knew and no one had kind of figured it out or that you realized something that you hadn't seen before? I didn't know which objects were in there and I didn't know how you might find out. So the way that I approach mm. programming is from the bottom up. I will look at everything that's there, and then I'll carefully carve around what I see, and slowly, 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 things appear. I start seeing more clearly, I start seeing some objects, I start seeing some patterns, but I don't know that they're there beforehand. And I, I'm much the opposite. You know, I would say I, I look at I'll look at a problem and have some intuition about what objects exist in there. But, you know, what is intuition except years of experience that you've forgotten how to explain? <laughs> right? And so I had an intuition that I had forgotten, uh, that I really couldn't explain at that point. And so, and so I'm, you know, now we have two people involved in a conversation who are at the, at the opposite ends of the continuum of, viewing the world through the lens of detail, building up the world through the lens of detail, or or constructing the world through the lens of abstraction, right? Katrina sits on one end, and she understands the whole because of her um, understanding of the parts. And I'm at the other end of that continuum. I, I um, trust th that the parts are okay if I understand the whole. And so I have this sort of, like, I wouldn't describe myself as hand-wavy at all. I am not hand-wavy. But I do have enormous amounts of confidence that if I understand the abstraction, that the details are will be simple to work out. And, and I think Katrina is very suspicious of an abstraction that doesn't have justification from a set of, of known well-known details. Now, I put those words in your mouth, Katrina, so you should probably say something. No, oh, that's probably confirm. Or deny. confirm. <laughs> So given being at those opposite ends of the spectrum, like you said, what was it like the process of working together on this book and going over different solutions? And I wonder, did you pair on any of the code? We didn't pair. We did, however, for probably a year before we started writing, we would write solutions. Um, I would do refactorings, Sandy would do refactorings, we would try to go use my process to end up with a solution that had um, abstractions that we could uh, understand and explain. And so we would we would go off on a, in different, you know, go off to our little caves or whatever and do some work and then we'd get together sometimes for hours and talk through each of the solutions. What do you like? What do you not like? Why did you do this? I don't understand. I disagree. I hate that. <laughs> In the nicest possible way. 
in the nicest possible way. And we <laughs> learn things. So here's the thing, right? When, when you work with people who are like you, it's really a lot of fun. It is because you, you, there's no conflict, right? You just, you, the wheels are spinning, you know, the wheels are, mm-hmm. you're flying down the highway. Like, like everything about uh, comfort, every bias is confirmed. And so th- it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it, it actually in some ways goes right back. It's, it's a problem of diversity, right? When there's no diversity, it's easy to get along and easy to do work and easy to do what you'd both originally planned to do anyway, but it doesn't necessarily improve the output. And so for us, we were about as opposite as you could be on on this continuum of um, concreteness and or abstraction. And so what it meant, at least for me, I, I don't know, I would, again, I'll let Katrina speak for herself. You know, we, ha- we really had to double down on our belief in one another's talents and our respect for each other because sometimes talking about the code was enormously frustrating. And it was frustrating because we, we believed that if we understood one another, we would agree. But since we couldn't understand one another, it felt like there was a lot of disagreement. That's interesting. Huh. Can you tell us about one of those disagreements? Um, let me think, you know, they've, I can, can you remember, remember one? they've mostly been resolved. So they fade in my head. Mm-hmm. Like again, the abstraction oh, is important. They've, yeah. all, they've all been resolved. Yeah. So the thing is, um, usually it would be something like I have a rule and Sandy makes a decision that goes against the rule. Mm-hmm. And so I disagree violently sometimes a little bit. And then Sandy is adamant that she's right, and we need to find a better rule. And once we could find a more precise or more nuanced rule, the whole disagreement went away. Uh, Like, I I distinctly remember, I mean, I I think I'm just going to say the same thing you just said, but perhaps in a slightly different way from my point of view. Like, we'd have these conversations where, like, okay, let me say this for people who may not know this, like Katrina is excellent at refactoring, which makes sense, right? When you think about what we've disclosed about our sort of personality types, our biases, like refactoring gives you a way to have a series of rules, a series of recipes so that you can predictively predictably transform code. And, And you have to choose, you know, there's, you make choices about what refactoring to do. There's certainly choice there, but within those broader choices, the smaller choices are pretty much dictated by the refactoring that you're doing. And so she had rules. I didn't really have rules. I was just, you know, I wasn't doing refactoring. I was doing rehactoring, right? I was just moving code around <laughs> until I could get my objects to fall out. And so we would have the, you know, Katrina was a really was a firm believer that the refactoring rules were correct. And sometimes I would want her to make transitions to create objects that nothing about the rules suggested were there. And so that was the point where you have to be inside my head in order to know what to do, which means that we can't explain it to anybody. Right? How can, mm. right? That, that is the problem right there. And so she would do a refactoring, she would move the code in a certain direction, and I would say that won't work because we need thing X. And she would say, how do you need, how do you know we need thing X? And I would be like, well, we just do. And, and so because it would, you know, we could have just, you know how you do at work when you're, when you're working with someone that's different than you, very, like you can do one of two things. You can just decide that they're bullheaded and wrong <laughs> and walk away. That's one, that's one option. Or you can decide that obviously they know they are, they're a good person and they know something that you don't get and that if you can hang in there till you get it, it might improve your code. Like either they're mm-hmm. evil or their intentions are good and you just don't understand. And so we had to really double down on the, even though every now and then she felt a little evil to me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really did hang in there through a couple. I mean, we never, like we always got along, but there were times when certainly I was frustrated. And I think that was probably true for you, Katrina, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, it was worth it because we, what we would, you know, I would be forced to try to explain what I meant 
and Katrina would be forced to, like between us, like there was some space in the middle between us that neither one of us were very good at it. And our desire to understand one another meant we both had to move into that space. I had to uh, commit to the to finding a set of rules that would let us discover objects. And Katrina had to commit to, I don't know what, I don't want to put those words in your mouth, Katrina. What did you have to commit to to make this partnership work? I had to trust that we that the abstractions, even if they weren't necessarily the right abstractions, that there were abstractions that were right, and that we could find them. That that going through with the step by step by step process would uncover abstractions that were correct. And Katrina, did you find throughout the process that any of your rules that you were standing by changed as a result of writing this book? My rules definitely became more nuanced. And I want to say that the rules didn't change so much as uh, come into focus. Like mm. I, I was doing a lot of things that I didn't really know I was doing. I, I kind of want to say Sandy was also doing that, right? She would based on a bunch of experience, she would say, we need this, we need X. And she would be right, but she wouldn't be able to say why she was right. And I was doing the same with my rules. I was like, I was, I was following a process, but I didn't necessarily understand the details of that process very well. I, I had a pretty good understanding of it, but once my process was being challenged, and once we started looking at uh, trying to explain every single choice that we made, the rules that I had became much simpler, I want to say. So it sounds like you were on the same page in terms of what the quote-unquote final product looked like, what the code should, you know, where it should end up, but a lot of the disagreement was around the process and being able to explain and unpack how you got there. Oh yeah, the I want to say the final product, the code, the final version of our code that we have now is not really the earliest. I mean, it changed a lot along the way, um, became quite a lot simpler, and it's not necessarily the best solution. But the the end point wasn't the point. If that makes mm. sense, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say the one thing I would add to that, Katrina, was that like. Uh, I believe it. To, I believe this to be a true statement. Um, the rules, both of us, challenge the other constantly with, "Why are you doing that? How can you like defend that?" And what we found is that we were both uh, doing things that we couldn't explain that we thought were right. For sure. Yeah, that's. And because of. Yeah. Right. So you had some rules that were, it turned out, were mostly right, but there, there are situations in which you followed them by rote, not really understanding what it meant to follow them. And I was doing the same thing, right? I was making objects because I could see them in there for reasons. The, the objects were there, but I couldn't really explain what it was about, what I saw in the problem or the code that justified the creation of those objects. And because we continually challenge each other about why. What we discovered is that it is possible to follow a set of very clear, very simple, very well understood rules and, and following those rules obediently will lead you to discover objects. And that you don't need to, you don't need to have 30 years of experience in OO to get it right. You just need to understand what the rules are and to know how to follow them. And we had two problems to begin with. We didn't really understand the rules. And it turned out that we weren't always following them. And a lot of the ways in which the, pro the code improved was we kept coding ourselves in the corner and we would, be, we would do things and we'd be like, well, this doesn't follow the rules. Well, what does that mean? And then in the end, when we finally quit doing those thing, that thing that programmers do where we made little leaps in the code because we thought we knew the answer. When we finally could look at the code carefully enough to say, oh, that was a leap, and go back and follow the rules, instead the code got better. And that was a real revelation. I was stunned when that happened. I want to say one thing. Following the rules doesn't mean 
mindlessly following the rules. It's not like you can take a piece of code, follow the rules mindlessly, and end up with excellent code. You're still making decisions. You're choosing a direction and then applying heuristics as you go in that direction. But you still have to choose a direction. It doesn't it doesn't take all the fun out of it at all. It just makes it safer. And less it makes it easier to recover from bad decisions and safer to proceed forward if along exploratory paths. Sandy Katrina, for anyone listening to this who thinks, you know, it's Sunday and they're gonna go into work tomorrow and there might be a colleague that they have that they're struggling to understand or get on with perhaps when they're pairing on some code, do you have any advice for them in terms of how to better understand that person and get on with that person? when tackling programming problems? I want to say that the the thing that I would suggest is to assume that their experience is valid. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say that same thing, but a different way. I was going to say believe in their good intentions. And and for me, very often what that means is uh, saying that thing out loud. Because it, it can really be, it's easy to get into that sort of headbanging, I hate you, I'm not really saying everything out loud, I'm just going to suffer here until I can get away from you as a pair, right? Um, if, if I tell someone, your approach seems so different than mine, then I'm having a hard time accepting it. <laughs> if I just say that out loud, like it feels like we're just going to have a fight and I don't want to have a fight. So I'm going to assume, like, you know, very, sometimes it means giving up on having your own way in order to prove to them that you believe in their good intentions. So you can have a session where you say, I don't know, I have a really different idea about how to do this, but today let's just do it your way and I'll commit to doing it 100%. I'll go all in on your way and then maybe tomorrow we can try my way, which is a completely different idea. And then between, if I try to do what you think and you try to do what I think, then maybe we can do a little retrospective and figure out what we learned. Acknowledging the difference can really diffuse the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. So in terms of just the logistics of writing the book, what does that look like when there are two authors? Did one person write one half, then the other person write the other? How long did it take? What does that collaboration look like? So the first thing that we did was to figure out the ideas of the book. What are the actual choices that we're making at every point? What is the code example that goes here? And so we had a skeleton of the whole book, including the ideas and which ideas go where. And that skeleton changed and we learned things. And as we tried to write things down and realized that we were unable to formulate something, we would go off and have discussions and think really hard and um, discover that there was more nuance or a bigger idea. But once we had the the ideas in mostly the right order and all of the all of the pieces in place, then Sandy went and did the actual writing, the final putting words to things. You know, it's it would be really nice to be able to share the writing because I find it so painful. But no, well, but but here's the truth, right? Two authors jointly editing paragraphs of text, I find that to be almost unbearable. Yeah, it's pretty torture. I think my my sense is that everyone who's ever done that hated that. And the it felt so important to have the tone of the book be completely even that it just made sense in the end to have one person do the writing of the actual text. We taught this. We don't teach together so much anymore. But we taught this problem together for a couple of years. And so we, we have lots and lots, uh, like one thing that might not be obvious to people who haven't read the book, this book is an, uh, is an outgrowth of a course on object-oriented design. So we've seen many, 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 many people do work these problems. And so many of the choices that are made in the book have been refined over having watched hundreds, really literally, hundreds and hundreds of students make choices, given given options and make choices. And so that that body of knowledge is really being written down here in the book. And so in some ways there's a third co-author here, which who will never get credit, which is every student who ever took the course. 
so in in that scenario when because that's one thing that you know we're only i think a, a chapter in but right away Nadia and I can tell that it's very well researched. It's so incredibly thoughtful. There's dates and citations and all these things that I just love seeing in in books. And when we're talking about all these students who kind of provided data over the years of all the the classes you've taught, how do you capture that information? Is is there a spreadsheet? Like, what what does it look like to kind of gather that as a source and synthesize it into these lessons? Oh my gosh! Uh, you know the, <laughs> we have we have outlines and notes. Oh well, go. Hey, wait. Are you are you deferring to me now? I can't. I don't want to talk over you here. Yeah, now I'm deferring. Uh, okay, so there's a repo with the refactorings in it, which is sort of the core of the course. But then, every time, you know, every time you ever well, I can say this for me personally. Pretty much every time I try to explain any idea to a group of people, the the explanations are improved by the ways in which I fail to explain it. By, that by the way I fail to reach people. And so, you know, if it's that whole thing about when you're explaining this, when you're trying to explain something to someone, if they don't understand it, whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it right? Is it their fault? Is it the fault of the receiver of the information or is it the fault of the sender of the information? It's pretty clear that if you if you really want to teach people, you have to assume that they're doing the best they can and it's your fault if they don't understand. And that suggests that you do all kinds of things to solicit feedback from them about whether or not they understood and, and if they didn't understand how you could have done it better. And so that set of uh, questions, you know, that's how, so so the course started out with, you know, a repo with code in it. And then, and then over the years, an outline, I, I've developed this outline that says everything students might possibly ask and all the best ways I've discovered to explain the answer to oh, wow. any one of those questions. And, and that, mm-hmm. it, a lot of that is in the book. Right. That the, the if you know, it's, I don't want to project on you two, uh, Nadia and, and Saran. I don't want to project anything about your experience while reading chapter one. But I hope that what is true is that is is that as you read, questions come up in your mind and then they are answered in the book. Hundred percent. I've had that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, if you think about like. Like, how could that possibly be? Are we psychic? <laughs> right? That's, I like that explanation. Yeah. That's I mean, fine. it would be cool to be, be psychic, psychic because we could, it would have made everything easier. The, the truth is we're not <laughs> psychic, right? We're completely fallible. We misunderstand. We give explanations that leave things out. We misunderstand what people misunderstand. Our theory of mind is not always good about, you know, if you, we assume a kind of background that you share. I, I assume that people share my background and they, and when they don't, I tell them things, I explain things to them in a way that makes it impossible for them to understand. And so this sort of constant querying about this, this constant checking in about whether people understand means that students have given us lots and lots of information about the ways in which our explanations are insufficient and how to improve them. And that's what you see in the book. We also did research along the way. So we also did research along the way when we were researching the problem and trying different things. We would go to uh, various other existing books and say, well, here's this idea. What happens if we use that um, to explain this or how is this different from how people generally explain things in blog blog posts? Is there a gap? Can we bridge that gap? Um, so we, we would also go to existing written resources. And some of that was, at least for me, in desperation. When I had a thing I wanted, I wanted to do, I wanted to say it's a good idea to do thing X now. And I would have absolutely no justification for that recommendation. I just think it's a good idea. And, and, you know, that's another way, just just as when you're working with someone who has a style different than yours, it can raise a lot, cause a lot of conflict 
and the way you deal with that conflict can either make you a better programmer or leave you without access to that difference, that information that difference does. If you have a thing you want to recommend and you, and you don't know why and you can't think of why, then you end up in a situation where you're relying on your own opinion and you're just telling other people, I'm right, listen to me, do what I say. And that is not very convincing. However, it is a, it is a, so a, a, a couple of times, a number of times in the book, we wanted to do a thing and one or the other of us, mostly, it must be admitted, Katrina would know of a reference out in the world that was, you know, some body of work that had an idea that was related to the idea that we were working on and we could go study those things and get some illumination about the problem, how to approach the problem that we were working on. And, and that was really helpful. Which and, it, and so all those references that you see are often at points where we're leaning on the opinions of experts to bolster our own. Swan and I have had quite a few people reach out to us and say, really keen to listen to the podcast and excited about 99 Bottles, but is this a book for me? Should I read this? When you set out to write the book, who was your intended audience? How, how does someone know if this is a book that they should pick up and read? I think it's for everyone. I, and <laughs> I, I just, I, I say that because of my experience in class. It, it's, um, it, I have found that people with very little experience and people with lots and lots of experience find it useful because the the strategies and techniques that we are advocating is are things that people just aren't doing, no matter where they are on the programming continuum. It, there is a way in which, I hate to claim this, I'm going to say it right out loud though, right? There, there's a way in which this is a little bit of a new thought. Um, it's true, it is true, having said that, it is true that people take away from it uh, different things based on the the experience level that they arrive at at it with but but it's like people that know like code school graduate let me say this actually as I'll, as I stutter around here sometimes in class we have people that don't know ruby and maybe like front end people sometimes come into the class and as long as they're paired with someone who has uh, Ruby syntax, right? Good skills at Ruby. They learn a ton about object-oriented programming, never having done it. It's also true that some of the most experienced people ever, people with 8 or 10 or 15 years of object-oriented programming experience, have come away somewhat with their minds blown. It's it's a little bit easier for kids, frankly, than for the really experienced people because they don't have the kids don't have habits to break. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't come in, believe, they don't read it believing they're already right. And I, I, I hesitate to use that language because it makes it seem like we think we're right. But the truth is, there's a way in which we do, right? We have lots of, we've worked very, very hard at finding a set of rules that help, that systematically can be used to improve the way you write code. And I'm trying. I'm trying to avoid all the hedging word here. All the hedging words here. I, I, I think it does. I, I won't. I won't assert that every problem is tractable to these techniques, but many, many, many problems are. And when I taught, when I see, you know, I teach these classes, and then I see people six months or a year later, and it's really common for me, for people to tell me that the this course transformed their coding lives. Where do you think that comes from? Because the idea of refactoring obviously is not new. The idea of OOP itself isn't new. What is the the newness in this book that has people's minds blown? Katrina, do you, I'm happy to answer that, but I want to not just forge on without letting you speak here. So I think that one of the things that we found as we were working on this were, were deeper, simpler understandings of the process and of the result. 
we have a lot of complex ideas about refactoring. We have a lot of complex ideas about design, about trade-offs. And I feel like one of the things we were able to do was strip away some of the complexity and go to a deeper truth that was more stable than our prior understanding. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. How do you feel about that, Yeah, Sandy? I do. Uh, I like it. Uh, like, if you think of all the books about refactoring and all the books about, say, patterns and all the, you know, all those academic tomes, tomes about OO, in some ways, they, there's a lot of thing, 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 shrub, 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 shrub. And it, it feels to me like, it, it feels to me as if in terms of object-oriented programming and object-oriented design, that there are a few underlying abstractions. I'll give you an example of one of them. And I, I'm, I'm probably, well, this might be in chapter one, too. Difference, as opposed to sameness, as a guide for how to find concepts, unnamed concepts in code. And, and that is a big... I, it's a huge, big idea that seems very simple on the surface. But the notion that difference matters more than sameness and that you should seek out places where difference, where code looks different but must mean the same thing and start there in terms of understanding what your code means, what ideas are in it, is huge. And people don't talk about it in that same way. But if you, if you pull that out as a guiding principle then many other smaller patterns make sense within the context of that abstraction. So one of the things that I really liked about coming to these sort of simpler understandings of, for example, look for the difference, not the sameness, was that I could go back to the more academic, the more complex, the more complicated resources that I have known about or read for, for years, like the Gang of Four uh, Book of Patterns, the refactoring book, and I could look at a lot of different patterns or a lot of different recipes and realize that all of these go back to this same idea. And having heard that, you can see why Katrina and I are really well suited to work together in this way. Because I, I'm the person who can look at something, I'll be, I'll like, I, I'm, I'll be given you know, lots of different code examples that look your dog gives you when it's confused, right? That squinty-eyed head turn. Look, <laughs> and finally, I, it'll, in a burst of understanding, I'll, I'll say, oh, really, we're talking about difference. And then Katrina's the one that says, yes, and it's here and here and here and here and here, right? It's really great yeah. to have that combination of all the details that support the idea and an understanding that all those details look different, but they really represent the same, a one single common thing. What's the initial response to the book been? Has there been anything that surprised you from what people have said or anything that people have gotten from the book that you weren't expecting? Well, my expectations, it would be hard not to exceed my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was terrified when releasing this because it feels like there are important ideas in here, but it's really hard to know if people are going to respond to it. Mm -hmm. You know, the ha writing and having written are such different things mm -hmm. that I feel, I feel extremely superstitious about imagining that people are going to like it, that people are going to read it, <laughs> that it's going to matter to people. Uh, like, the, uh, the, those things cannot be my motivation um and so having said that you could probably guess that my expectations were really 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 like small and it was kind of like a bomb went off when it got released three weeks ago when the beta went out it was really shocking how much how many people like got it that first day and how much talk there was about it the the initial buzz is sort of tailed off at this point so we're down to more sort of kind of a steady day-to-day, -day, you know, set of people getting it instead of a big burst that happened on the first day. So it, it the jury is really out at this point about whether uh, we've written a book 
that is going to have an effect on the way people write code. An accessible, open, life-changing for some programmers book or a flash in the pan. You can't know. All right. I, I can say that I feel really good about it. I, I didn't, at, at, at the beginning, I was, I didn't so much. Not that I felt bad about it, but that I wasn't, I wasn't really proud of it to begin with. It was just a slog, right? We were working, working, working. It was fun to work with Katrina, but it didn't seem like a, a, a body of work that one could put out in the world with one's name on it and say, hey, we did that. That's really good. We did, we provided like a service that's going to matter to people. And now, having worked on it for almost three years, it feels like that. It feels like a real thing. I, and now, Katrina, I want you to back me up and say something about that, too. I mean, I, I feel enormously proud now, and it's not even quite done. I, I think, I I don't know, I feel superstitious about saying this out loud. But it, it feels like it might be a book that matters. Mm. And that, even if no one ever buys it, I'm going to feel that way, right? Even if not another soul ever buys a copy of it, it feels worthwhile having struggled to produce it. But I do hope that it matters. And and I and I think that it that it might. It feels like it could. Katrina, how do you feel? I agree. One hundred yeah, one hundred percent. I am incredibly encouraged by the initial response. There's been some enthusiasm on Twitter and that's always fun. But what people say about it doesn't change how I feel about it, which is that I have learned enormously in doing the work, in slogging through the ideas, in butting heads and being bullheaded and it's coming to my senses. <laughs> it's a feature. Uh, all of that has been worthwhile. And I, I do believe that the result is better for all of those things. And I do re really truly hope that this is something that people can take and use and that it will affect how they write code. I mean, we, we ought to tell a story about how we decided to write it. Yes, yeah, please. hear it. <laughs> well, so the course is really expensive because I don't really want to leave my house. <laughs> and, and it's behind the firewall mostly, right? And so uh, we had so we, we you know we developed this body of material that was basically available to you know a couple hundred people a year, and both of us are from blue collar self taught programming backgrounds, and we wanted to make the this information we wanted to make the fruits of our struggle available to people like us. And that meant a huge struggle. It meant writing a book. Like, I, I don't know. Let me ask you this, Katrina. If you had known how long it was going to take to get this far, would you have done it? <laughs> yeah, I still would have done it. You passed the test. <laughs> but, but it hurts, right? It's it takes yeah. a long time. Um, we we thought the beta would be out almost a year ago, right? I was telling people, yeah, we were giving people like October of, well, but because the the content's been done, it's really been the writing. It's been me that's a hold up for the the honest truth here. It's been me that's a hold up. Yeah, so we thought it would be done, and then it's just taken forever. It's a lot of work, but but it's a it's a thing where it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, right? So we felt a moral a moral obligation to make this material available in, in the absence of any indication that our efforts to do so would ever reward us in any way, mm -hmm. right? Self published books. I don't know. You guys probably know the math. Like I was unwilling. We were. I was unwilling to give away copyright on another book. But at the same time, it, it was very clear to me that doing it ourselves might, um, that uh, it might, it, you know, it, there's a, it, it might matter in terms of how widely it got distributed. But I don't know. It feels like we've, it, it's like our part is to do the best work we can and to 
put make this material available and then uh, we just have to cast the rest of it to the winds right whatever happens now will happen well it definitely feels like it's it's working out for you well it it really was frightening how many people have bought it already let, let me say this <laughs> i i have just uh, I feel enormous pressure to get it finished, to get the writing done. I was mm-hmm. writing before we got mm-hmm. on this podcast because I have now we have a real obligation to all those people who uh, conveyed their trust in us by purchasing the beta. And, you know, it can't be months before it's done. It has to get done, like, pretty much. It. It's the top priority in my life right now. I can say that. So when I, you know, I've been doing Ruby for a few years now and, Puda was the book that was on everyone's lips when I was going through my boot camp, and I think Saron as well is a big fan of it. I wanted to know, like, having finished 99 Bottles, how do you look back on Puda, particularly when you spoke about trying to write a book that matters? Because at least from my perspective, you know, Puda has been hugely influential for a lot of people coming into Ruby. Well, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, it's I wrote Pooter for a lot of reasons, but primarily it was a sense of obligation, but with no expectation that people would find it useful. Mm. And I'm not, I don't know if that sounds like a contradiction, but it was certainly the truth, right? Mm -hmm. I, I got, I was getting, I got found, you know, I got overheard in a hallway rant about how easy it would be for people to do better, a better job of explaining OO by uh, the woman who eventually became my editor at Addison Wesley. And she harangued me for a number of years to write a book. I didn't want to do it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, who writes books? We don't write books. It's not a normal person thing to write a book. Famous people Famous write people books. people write books, but not us. <laughs> Experts right? write we books. We write email and code and documentation. That's mm-hmm. what we write. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so... I didn't, it, it, it was unimaginable to me that people would read that book. And, and I had plenty of evidence that I was correct in that assumption because while I was writing it, people would ask me for copies and they wouldn't read it. It was, it was a common thing, right? Everybody's busy. And so finishing that book was, I mean, the only reason I got it done was because I eventually decided that I would hate myself forever if I quit. And, and, and so I was so, you know, now there's such a thing as Internet Sandy, right? But then there wasn't. No one had any idea who I was. And so that, you know, it's a matter of like choosing to do your best work even in a vacuum because it's, you can't be, you won't, you won't, you'll feel bad about yourself forever if you don't. And so I didn't really think, like, I had, I had no idea what was going to happen when Pooter was published. Nobody was surprised as I, as me. I can tell you that. And and so, and it was torturous. The writing was torturous. Like, I'm a little bit dyslexic. And so I I live and die by the squiggly, squiggly red line. When I write things, I read them out loud to know if they're okay. And so it's a slow, torturous process for me. Um and so I swore I would never do that again. That was like, <laughs> finish that one and run, Until right? Katrina came along. <laughs> well, yeah. what happened was Katrina and I knew this huge, big thing that people were finding incredibly useful. And so, we, you know, we live in this open source world where the line between what our obligation to for make uh, make the information we have available to other people whether or not you charge for it, right? Because many people told me, people people have told me over and over again in the last couple of years that they, they wished I would write, they wish I would do something for which they could pay me so that I would do it and they could have it. And that, right? And, and, and that's an interesting moral dilemma sort of in the world, right? So for us, the, the obligation that we felt as members of the open source community to make this content available is really a separate issue from whether or not if we do if we if we do that instead of writing code and making a living, you know how we can make it so that the community can support us to do that. Um, so Pooter turned out Pooter was life changing for me in the sense that 
it mattered enormously to me that I did it. The fact that it mattered to other people about how they write code is enormously gratifying, but it wasn't my plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This book feels like an attempt to do good for other people in a way that it didn't, like my motivations here are to give this, get this content in other people's hands. And that wasn't my motivation at all for Pooter. So Katrina, I'm wondering, since this whole 99 Bottles premise came from exorcism, how do you see this book as part of the journey for your users and a bunch of coders who use exorcism and use these little katas to practice their skills? There's something that I believe about small exercises that I think a lot of people probably haven't thought of or might disagree with. And I believe that you can understand big ideas by working on trivial, very small problems. And I feel like this book backs me up in that belief. That if you take something simple and you go deep, you find ideas that can be applied on real world problems, on big problems, on everyday problems. And so I think that for someone who has already done the 99 bottles bottles problem and has spent a little bit of time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, thinking about that problem, reading this book could give them a broader perspective on certain ideas, or it could give them, you know, it could, it could give them places where they can go deeper, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right, though. Like, as someone who never did an exercise before I quit my day job after 30 years of writing code every day, I've been astonished at how my understanding of object-oriented programming design has gotten better over the last couple years. And it's, it comes from thinking about objects and the kata-sized exercise is a way to, to cast an idea into really sharp relief. Right? It's a little dark room that you can shine a very bright light into to see the pattern. And that and that those patterns they that they map to problems of, of an infinite variety of sizes, but they're hard to learn on big problems. It's it's much easier to learn them on small problems. One thing I can tell you is in, in class when we teach this problem, then we have other problems, right? Other problems happen after that. And and I teach for very sophisticated ideas about object-oriented design by referring to things in the 99 bottles problem. I'll say, remember that shape of the code? Remember when we did thing X? It, this is that problem, only bigger. This is that problem in a, in a bigger size. And so having like the, th- the ideas that are in this book, in, uh, learning the ideas in this book develops a language that people can use to talk about OO. And that language is really hard to develop on a problem that you don't understand or that you don't care about, like bank loans. Do some bank loans. That'll make you happy. So you mentioned that you self-published this book, and at the moment it's only in ebook format, and it's at $49, which some people may find pricey. So are there options for people if they can't afford to buy the book? Definitely. But first, let's talk about pricing in general. So pricing, what, how do you price things? We, we started out, when we first started talking about this book, we had a, a, co- we had a number of mutual rants about book pricing. We did. <laughs> and we'd be like, ah, we're going to write a book and it's going to be awesome and it's going to cost $10. <laughs> we, I distinctly remember having that conversation. $10. $10. Definitely. Maybe 15 But, but anyway, <laughs> that'd be, it's just a ripoff to charge more. And then, and then many years pass, years pass. Um, and so we had to, you know, every, as, as the months of work built up, our, my willingness 
certainly to price it where other self-published books are priced increased. Mm-hmm. And that was then, and this is now, right? So that's one thing. And so then, so then once we decided, okay, there, there's a lot of books at, at this $50 mark, honestly, that's what that is. $49 is what they're putting on them. If we charge $49, then what, and, and our stated goal is to get this content into people who, into the hands of the people who cannot afford the course, then how do we, how, how do we get it in the hands of people who can't afford the book? What will we do? And Avdi Grimm has a plan where if you mail him a postcard, he'll send you a copy of his book for free. And I loved that when I heard about it because it solved the whole problem. You know, I like I want people to have to go to some trouble. I am willing to give it away. We, we are totally willing to give it away for free. We love the idea. But we, do, but the thought that you could just mail me your email address and I would send it back to you, it seems to me to impose slightly too small a burden on the mm-hmm. end. <laughs> and when I ask people, I've asked a bunch of people, uh, if programmers, gainfully employed programmers, I ask them, would you rather go get a postcard? Now, this is a proper postcard. That's the rule. <laughs> you can't just cut up a piece of brown bag in your house and put a, put a first-class stamp on it, right? It has to be a real postcard, or you can draw me a postcard. Mm. A, a sufficiently artistic postcard can be made at home. But, so so it, has be, yeah, <laughs> it has to be a proper postcard. So like a vacation scene or a beach scene or a mountain scene, and it needs a postcard stamp. Okay, all these things mean you have to go to some trouble. On it, you have to put your email address and a paragraph about how you will change, how you will make the world a better place if we send you a free copy of the book. I'll just give you 50 bucks. That sounds like way too much. Exactly. <laughs> and when I ask people, I ask gainfully employed programmers, will you send me a, would you rather send me a postcard or give me $49? They all laugh and they say, just what you said, Saran. And so now well, here's yeah. what we know, right? For most gainfully employed programmers, $49 is not that much money. And we, there's a pile of postcards. I don't have them all. They, they, they actually go to my assistant. So, and she's, her scanner is in a box because she's in between houses. So I have not yet seen all the postcards, but there's a bunch of them have come in already. Um, and they all got free books, right? We're just sending free books to everybody who sends a postcard. But it's, it's interesting that uh, some people who don't want to pay $49, what happens is they want to pay less. It's too much trouble for them to send us a postcard. But they don't want to pay $49. But they want the book no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I am, despite the fact that Internet Sandy is really much nicer than real Sandy, (laughs) even Internet Sandy is comfortable saying I am unsympathetic to the point of view that says there ought to be a midpoint in price. Mm -hmm. I I just am so happy to give the book for free, absolute, total free, for anybody who will mail a postcard. And so... Choosing to either say it's, you know, you pay full price or you get it for free allows us to avoid all the shady, uh, fuzzy moral ground that involves the people from Brazil who are asking, for for example, that's just one example. Like we, We've gotten a number of emails from people at different places in the world who say, my exchange rate is bad. Will you sell me this right, book for yeah. half price? Mm-hmm. I, I, what am I going to do about that? Does every countries that has a different exchange rate get a different price like like the mm. it's very and does every programmer in america who has a different or, income sorry I, it's, yeah. no, it's just really yeah. like here's the thing we we don't this is what we decided right we do not want to decide who deserves a break on price so there's two prices there's the full price and there's free and we did make a way because there we had so many requests for people to pay something which I respect people's desire to pay something who can't pay full price. We, we actually made a couple of products that we call good karma. There's postcard karma. And so there's a way, there's a somewhat secret store that we send people a link to when we mail them their free copy that lets folks come online and buy, basically make a contribution to support the postcard program. So you can, mm-hmm. you can give 10 bucks or give 25 bucks or something. 
How do you recommend people approach this book? It starts off by saying, solve this coding problem, give yourself 30 minutes, and then continue. But after that first initial exercise, as we're working through the different chapters, what advice do you have for people to get really the most out of this book? Do it. Type it all. Every every line of code that you see in the book ought to come out of your hands and onto your keyboard and into your text editor. If you don't type it, even the examples, all the examples, every line of code you see. Yeah. If my experience with class is if is reading it is not the same as doing it. Mm. Oh, it's wrong. We've been doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in chapter one. There's not a lot like you don't have to. OK, let me let me hedge on that a little bit. <laughs> on chapter one, the the examples up. Like chapter two starts and writes the tests mm -hmm. that make you produce the code example that is the last example given in chapter one. And so the the four uh, illustrate the first three solutions that are illustrated in chapter one are really intended to stand in as the result of you, a result like the one you did in your 30 minutes writing, solving the problem. So you don't have to do those, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Those are somebody else's solution. But after that, from the end of chapter one, from the beginning of chapter two on, if you don't type it, I feel, uh, let me say, okay, here's, here's what I'll tell you. In class, we do, these ex we do these exercises as a mob, right? We'll have 20 people or 25 people in a room, and we'll work through it as a group, and we immediately break up into pairs and do the same exercise again. Very often at that point, 30 minutes later, after having just seen it, people did not retain enough to be able to do it. And so if, if, they, if, if someone who just saw a live demo of it can't really re, can't restrain themselves from jump, the problem is people jump ahead. They make leaps instead of taking small steps and they forget mm -hmm. how to, you, like we are so, the, in the past we have had no help about programming. Right. Historically, here's the way we write code. You look at a problem, you figure out what you want to do, and you go try to implement that solution. The habit of trying to follow a simple set of rules and choosing your direction and then following these rules and doing only what the rules say to see where that leads you is completely absent in us. And so what happens is we give people the rules and they believe that they're following, following them, but instead they're making leaps. Mm -hmm. And they're jumping, they're right, they're just jumping off in the bushes. And so practicing doing it is really, really important because our habits are all wrong. And if you don't practice reading, you read it, here's what will happen. I would predict this is the experience you would have reading the book if you don't do the exercises. You would read it, and while you were reading it, you would, you would nod your head sagely and say, wow, yes, I see, that's very convincing, it all makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And then later, you would be unable to do it yourself. Yes because you had not practiced. Mm -hmm. So I want to change behavior, yep. right? We want to change how people write yeah. code. And so that means we need you to, all of you, right? You two and everybody who's listening to this, we need, like, I want you, I plead, I plead with you, I, I plead with you to go do it. And that's where this turns into not a book, but a workshop. The fact that you have to participate to get something out of it. This interview's come at a perfect time because yeah. <laughs> we're just coming to the end of chapter one, but we haven't started chapter two yet. Yeah. yeah. So we Thank haven't. We don't have to go back. Thank goodness, and, we're having this conversation <laughs> now. <laughs> we don't have to re-record. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any last thoughts, Katrina? I was so no, <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. Um, but so here's so here's the thing that I have a story from university that sort of backs up the type the thing story yes, please. instruction. Yeah. So when I was at university some 10 or 15 years ago, I took a physics class that was fantastic. And we had a really good physics book that we you would read through the chapter. At least I would read through the chapter and then we'd get to the exercises and so I'd read through the chapter and I understood it. It was fine. I got it. I was nodding my head the whole time, sagely. <laughs> and then I'd get to the first problem and I would have no idea how to solve it. And so I'd flip back to the beginning and read just enough to actually be able to solve the problem. And then I'd go through and solve every single problem, flipping back and forth. 
And by the time I had finished all of the problems, I could read through the chapter and actually understand it. And after a while of doing this, I finally stopped reading the chapter ahead of time, went uh-huh. straight to the exercises, and would read just enough to solve the exercise. Mm. And then I would read through the entire chapter at the end. Yeah, interesting. And that's probably quite an efficient way to to learn, right? Because you, you've done the practice, and then you, when you're going back to reread or to read, you're in tune to what you struggled with and also what you're more familiar with. And you've had that experience, which will help consolidate or make things sharp or make you perhaps spot things that you didn't necessarily, you wouldn't have necessarily picked up on if you were reading it cold the first time. So after hearing from the authors of 99 Bottles, we want to know, how do you plan on getting the most out of the book? How do you plan on approaching this reading? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this interview in your next project. Sandy and Katrina, you want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for having us. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.